Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises that manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and Lou Wise. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. We're glad to be back on the air with you on this uh, this Tuesday afternoon on the East Coast. It's uh, earlier than that on the West Coast. We're going to be talking about the March ISM report today with uh, Mr. Brad Holcomb. And we're also going to be talking about the economy in general uh, with a very special guest. I'll introduce both of those gentlemen uh, after we speak with our co-host, Lou Wise. Lou, how are you today? I'm doing terrific. Thank you. I wanted to talk about uh, last week's uh, show. Uh, We are starting an aerospace industry series of four shows. And last week we did have our first show, and we talked about uh, aerospace in New England, primarily Connecticut and uh, Massachusetts. It was a terrific show. We had some uh, very interesting people and uh, uh, government people and so on that uh, talked about this uh, mushrooming industry as it is now. Um, And we are going to be having a show coming up from uh, Georgia and uh, the Carolinas, which will be the next show. And then we're going to be doing Texas and uh, Arizona. And then uh, lastly will be California and the West Coast or whatever is left of it after the um, port issues out there. Um, so let's uh, keep keep it tuned to that because they're very interesting information uh, on one of the largest industries uh, in the country. Right now the aerospace industry is about a $230 billion industry, 5% of our GDP. So it's uh, pretty healthy. Um the uh, item two, the port issue, uh, L.A. port issue, seems to be sort of resolved. They haven't signed the ratified the contract yet, and they won't until May 20th. Um, maybe by then the 20,000 union members might even know what's in the contract, because as of this morning, they still have no clue what's in the contract. So we'll have to wait and see how that's going. The port in L.A. is beginning to clear up uh, slowly. Uh, The month of March so far, they had uh, 300,000 containers uh, moving compared to last month at 200,000 containers. So there is an impressive uh, jump, but it's still uh, problematic. The East Coast, of course, is suffering a bit from a lot of the container transfers to the East Coast. New York is uh, having its problems with uh, slowdown due to volume, uh, but I presume that that will clear up uh, at some point. Uh, The next point, and I'm glad uh, to announce that uh, the Institute of Supply Management, who's on our show today, Brad uh, Holcomb, the uh, ISM May uh, 3rd through 6th is having their 100th anniversary conference and uh, uh, Robert Gates is going to be the keynote speaker and Manufacturing Talk Radio will be broadcasting live and uh, we hope to uh, have some very interesting uh, guests and with any kind of luck perhaps uh, Robert Gates uh, may be one of them. 
Uh, I know that Tom Derry is going to be one of our speakers, who's the president of the ISM. So we're looking forward to that, and we'll all be out there with our our finest yellow jackets and black slacks, and uh, we'll be we'll be stars of the show ourselves like we were last year. Uh, that being said, uh, Tim, we're going to talk about the uh, April ISM report. Uh, here with Mr. Brad Holcomb, who's the committee chair of the ISM's report on business. He puts this report together each month. Uh, it comes from, uh, I guess, a sampling of 350 manufacturers out there who give feedback into the ISM, and then they run through their algorithms and come up with a, an interesting report that uh, we, uh, we watch uh, All Metals and Forge Group, who is the sponsor of our show, follow that report as really as the Bible. Uh, there are lots of reports out there, but this one just seems to be dead on what's happening. So we encourage you to go to ism.ws and look under their research tab to find that report. We'll also have Dr. Ray Perryman on the show today. He is the president and CEO of the Perryman Group, which is an economic research and, and, analy- and, and anal- analysis firm in Waco, Texas. Uh, Dr. Perryman uh, has quite a career, including 10 years at Herman Brown, where he was professor of economics, five years at the university, um, uh, university professor in economic economist in residence at Baylor University, uh, as well as five years as business economist in residence at Southern Methodist University. He's a speaker from all over the world. Uh, Brad and Ray, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Thank, thank you very, very much. I'm glad to be here as well. Uh, Brad, let's start with you, and let's talk about the ISM report. Uh, and just to remind everyone, uh, this is a roll-up for the month of March. And, Brad, if you want to share the uh, number and some of the insights on that report, we'll begin to work our way through it, and we'll get some feedback from Dr. Perryman as well on how the economy is doing. Great. Let, let me first uh, just build on what you were saying about ISM's uh, conference coming up in Phoenix, Arizona, May third through sixth. It is the hundredth anniversary of the organization and uh, there will be upwards to three thousand professional procurement and supply chain professionals from I'm gonna guess twenty, thirty or more countries around the world. I look forward to, to attend that. And uh, also wanted to again thank Dr. Perryman for be our being our economist keynote speaker at that conference uh, a few years ago. So thanks for that, Ray. My pleasure. You, brought, you sent me to Baltimore, but you won't send me to Phoenix. Something's wrong with this. I don't know. <laughs> we can talk. Okay. So let's look at the March report, which we released on April 1st. Uh, the PMI came in at 51.5, which is down, I think, 1.4 percentage points uh, from the previous month. And it's actually the lowest reading since May of 2013 when the PMI was 50.1. So a little disappointing there. Um, And it does, however, indicate growth in manufacturing for the 27th consecutive month. As you all know, anything over 50 represents growth and anything under 50 contractions. So at 51.5, we're still growing. Uh, New orders was off 7 tenths of a point to 51.8, while production was up a tick 
to 53.8. Employment, which everyone, of course, looks at, and again, we reported uh, this last week uh, on April 1st, the employment was exactly at 50% even, showing that there was no change in employment from March relative to, to February. And this, uh, again, was a leading indicator of what we saw from the government uh, a few days later, a rather disappointing employment figure for the month of, of March. Um, so those are some of the key numbers. Uh, we'll get into more as we, uh, as we talk through the show. Um, but um, overall, the growth for the first quarter now is, is at a quite modest rate, and it corresponds uh, to our table uh, correlating with GDP to a 3% increase in real GDP for the first quarter. And yet, I think we're positioned well for the distinct possibility uh, of increased numbers uh, as we go forward, consistent with the forecast that we put out for the year last December, and which we will tune up and present from the conference that I mentioned. Um, I think our our presentation on that point is on May 5th on Wednesday morning. We'll and be, with uh, that, I'll forward. pause. Yeah, we'll be looking to forward uh, to hearing that, uh, Brad, because that is a uh, another very key report. Uh, Dr. Freeman, Ray, just to go to you quickly, how do you see the economy in 2015? As we came out of 2014, it seemed like it was going gangbusters. People were even being brave enough to say we might have a 4% GDP, which the U.S. hasn't seen in some time. What does it look like from your perspective? Well, first, first of all, before I do that, I would like to just echo something you said, Tim, and that is the ISM's reports and the work that Brad does is so important. They really are the Bible for <clears throat> folks in manufacturing and folks that follow the overall economy. They're, they're the go-to folks, and I just want to commend them for everything they do. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, yeah, the economy is, appears to be slowing a little bit right now. I think there's still a lot of momentum out there. We're going to see some things. For example, one thing that's going to show up in manufacturing, of course, is that there's going to be a big slowdown in all the manufacturing related to oil and gas, and that's been a big driver pushing things forward, and now it's going to tamp down a little bit for a while. And so I think there's, there's some dynamics like that that are going on in the economy. By the same token, lower gasoline costs are, are a boost for the economy. So there, there, there's always a lot of things going on at any point in time, but we feel like this is going to be a very good year. Our forecast for growth for the overall for the year is somewhere around 3.4%, which is, which is a good, healthy year uh, of economic growth. It would be a strong year, yes. And, Brad, what are some of the comments that you have heard from the contributors to the report? Yeah, you know, if I go back to, to last year, uh, we had one big thing that kind of got us off to a slow start, and that was the unbelievable harsh winter, you know, particularly in the Northeast, but it impacted, you know, many parts of the country as well. You know, this year is, is different in that we seem to have a bunch of, say, smaller issues, but maybe they all add up to something that, that represents a, a little bit of a, of a drag or, or concern, many of which are starting to, to get cleared up, and the first one of those is the West Coast port issue. So, so the collection of comments refer to, to the following sort of issues. 
a lingering, uh, continuing challenge from the West Coast port situation, lower oil prices having both a positive and negative impact, and as Ray mentioned, certainly a negative impact on that particular industry, uh, residual effects of the harsh winter, uh, not as harsh as last year, but certainly some effect there. Higher costs of health care premiums. I think that comment comes from one of the uh, small to mid-sized businesses that are still trying to sort of figure out what that all means. And then, of course, the stronger dollar and its impact on our exports and in international business. So those those are kind of the the, the smaller issues that, that seem to add up to, you know, a little more of an overall, um, you know, bit of a damper at this point. But as Ray said, and I as well, I'm optimistic about a good year ahead, uh, as I said, consistent with our forecast, uh, which we'll update shortly as well. As I recall, uh, gentlemen, last year also, the first three months of the year, was uh, not all that powerful. And then it came on like gangbusters up until the end of the year. Uh, are we going to have that same effect? Well, I, I don't think it's quite as it – it's not going down as much, and, and I don't think it necessarily roars back quite as much. But I think we will have a, a year that strengthens as we go along. You have to remember, last year in the first quarter, we actually had a pretty large drop in GDP. I mean, it was it, we're, we're talking about a little bit lower rate of growth right now, but we actually had a, a, a significant drop in GDP. It was virtually all because of the polar vortex and the, and the weather situation. And I remember that, that every speech I gave in that quarter, I had to, or the next quarter, I had to explain why the number was so low. It was because of the weather. And but it was a but it was a it was a drop and so the rest of the year you're trying to make that up in terms of your percentage growth and that sort of thing and and, and so you really sort of had almost two quarters of growth in one in the second quarter which really kind of launched things last year we're not quite in that same situation this time around but I do think you'll see strong momentum as the year goes along. Dr. Perryman, what's happening with the healthcare premiums across manufacturing? I see some of the uh, businesses continue to struggle to try to balance this into their. Uh, into their expense books. Uh, how does it look from your perspective across the industry? Well, it's it's tough. There, there's no question. It, it, it's a major cost driver, and I think probably more important than the fact that they're going up quite a bit is the uncertainty associated with them at this point in time. And and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. There's some good and bad things about the Affordable Care Act, uh, but but one one thing that happens is when you put everybody in the pool, uh, then then the pool is is riskier than it used to be, and, and, and as a result of that, that 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 necessitates some premium increases, and, and so you, you have that going on. At the same time, some businesses are balancing where they put their people on the exchanges, or they they continue to. Do health insurance internally. They're dealing with the level of their copays that, that that their employees have, and and all companies across the board, but particularly small to middle-sized companies, are really struggling with this issue right now. And unfortunately, we still don't have a great deal of clarity about it. But but I think it's fairly obvious that just given the riskier pool of, of people out there to be insured, and given the uh, and, and given the the aging and the demographics and everything else in the economy, that uh, that that premiums are likely to go up. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brad, uh, new orders seems to have been ticking down slowly, which is uh, uh, not necessarily true across all industries. How did the report uh, express that in March? Right. Yeah, so new orders was at 51.8, uh, down from 52.5 uh, last last month. And just checking my, my column here, 
you know, it's it's been uh, you know 52.9, 52.5, 51.8, uh, the this year in the first first three months. Um, so uh, again, not as strong as as we would like, and we've talked about some of the possible issues uh, impacting those. Uh, if we look deeper in, the, in our section on new orders in the report, we can see that um, it's almost equally split between our uh, among our 18 different industries, where nine industries are reporting growth in new orders, and eight industries are reporting a decrease in, in new orders, and it, it rarely gets uh, that far out of balance, uh, but. In, in total, and I'll talk about some of the industries in a second, uh, in total it all adds up to, to a plus that is above 50. Uh, we do weight the 18 different industries in terms of their contribution to manufacturing GDP when we do our calculations, and so that's why you see numbers uh, like, like 51.8, you know, point something because everything is weighted uh, according to contribution. Now, just uh, looking at some of the industries that are reporting growth in new orders, uh, wood products and paper products uh, lead the list. Uh, those aren't among our, our largest industries, but fabricated metal products, transportation equipment, those are starting to be you know, much larger industries. Food, beverage, and tobacco products, one of our very largest machinery, furniture, and related products. Uh, chemical products is quite large. And actually, the largest uh, industry of the 18 that we follow uh, is last on the list, and that's computer and electronic products, which represents about 15.5% uh, of manufacturing GDP, the way we tally things up. So there's a good mix of... of uh, you know, strong, larger industries on the on the uh, top of the list. And then in the list which reports a decrease in new orders, we have uh, apparel, leather, and allied products, printing and related, textile mills, also not very large. But here it is, petroleum and coal products, right? No, no surprise there. Miscellaneous manufacturing. Uh, electrical equipment, appliances, and components. Uh, those, uh, to some degree, relate to petroleum and coal products as well as others. And then <clears throat> one of your favorites uh, on this list, uh, Tim and Lou, is uh, primary metals. And then finally, uh, plastic and rubber products. So again, um, you know, about evenly split in terms of pluses and minuses. And... Um, you know, there you have it in terms of new orders. Now, production seems to have picked up a bit, Brad. Can you explain why that picks up when new orders ticks down? Yes, um, and there's an interesting interaction between metrics here. Production is up a tick by that, I mean, just a tenth of a point to 53.8. So while new orders is going down, production is going up. But what what manufacturing tries to do, you know, every every day, every week, every month is 
level load and balance production according to the employment available on hand, according to the assets available uh, as well. So uh, this is, you know, fully utilizing their production capability. And if you'll drop down on the main table, you'll see that the backlog of orders went down two-tenths of a point to 49.5. And so manufacturing was dipping into the backlog of orders as well as covering off new orders, and that's why it's gone up. And I want to talk about employment from two perspectives uh, in a minute here. Brad, I'd like you to present what the report shows about employment, and then I want to go to Dr. Perryman on a particular point regarding employment and the numbers that just came out. So, Brad, why don't you share with our listeners what has happened with employment in the month of March? Yeah. Employment registered exactly 50, which means unchanged from the previous month. And if I go to... Uh, the, the table, uh, it's been uh, starting in December 2014, it was 56, then down to 54.1 in January, 51.4 in February, and then 50 even. Uh, so I think it's, it's been, been tempering according to, you know, what we've already talked about. And, um, and as, as I said, we, we, correlate well with the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Got to give my dog a treat here. Excuse me. Uh, it, we, we correlate well with the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, readings on manufacturing employment. Those numbers came out uh, several days later. And uh, sure enough, uh, you know, anything on our table below 50.6 represents uh, in, in general you know, a reduction in those uh, government numbers, which which actually uh, transpired. Now, Dr. Perryman, as uh, in, as we reach full employment, the, the theoretical five percent, I guess we're at five point five, and the employment number came out at one hundred and twenty-six thousand new jobs created. Would you not expect new job creation to slow as we reach the theoretical five percent full employment? Well, it was slow some, but basically when you reach full employment, and there's a lot of quibbling about what the exact number for that is, and there's really not an exact number, but basically what you're saying then is the remaining unemployment is frictional. It's people who are choosing to change jobs, just the sheer logistics of being off work a month or two between jobs and things like that, that basically most people that want to be working are working either full-time or part-time and and at least have have some type of job in the workforce. Uh, So as you get close to that, there's – Basically, all you tend to see is just the churning piece of it. Some of that's demographic expansion. As, as young people come in the workforce, the births exceed the, or the, the entries exceed the exits, and so that you get some growth just from from that perspective. And and then and then you, and, and then you can still continue to see some growth because we're still, as, as Brad will tell you, well below capacity utilization levels we've seen in the past in terms of manufacturing and some other sectors. So there's still room for some more growth in there. Uh, you, you also have opportunities for a lot of people who are underemployed to get a better job for people who working part-time to work full-time. <clears throat> now, now, when that happens, they don't count as a new worker. So the statistic looks worse, but the employment situation is actually getting better. And so you have the, the, the employment statistics are very difficult. In fact, I maintain they don't give you a good read on the economy because there's so many things that can skew them. But, but nonetheless, there's a lot of things that can happen there. But in terms of just sheer numbers, once you get to a certain level, yes, you're not going to be able to create 200,000, 300,000 jobs a month consistently because you're simply not going to have the people in the workforce. 
I'd like to go a little granular for the moment. Being that you're both from the uh, great state of Texas, I'd like to ask a question or two about that. As I mentioned earlier in the show, we are going to be doing, and we are doing, a series on aerospace. And within a couple of weeks, we are going to be talking about uh, Texas and Arizona uh, in, in that, from that industry. Um, the fact that oil has uh, is taking a hit and most likely affecting um, the oil industry in Texas, the fact that aerospace is taking uh, taking off and uh, rather healthy, is there a, an offset to the state of Texas? Aerospace is booming and oil is uh, uh, declining. Well, there's certainly some offset there. It's it's not enough. I mean, if you if you compare the number of people working in aerospace in Texas to the number of people working in oil and gas, or the volume of GDP or anything else, oil is very much a dominant industry in Texas. And so it's not a it's not a dramatic offset in terms of uh, in terms of uh, the numbers. But there are a lot of offsets that go with this. One is that simply Texas is also a big producer of petrochemicals and refined petroleum products. Those do better when oil prices are low, and they're more competitive globally when oil prices are low. And, and, and so you have that going on, which in turn feeds the shipping industry and a lot of other things. And obviously, like everywhere else, we have consumers who have more money to spend when oil prices are low. So there's there's all kinds of trade-offs in the economy. Net on balance, our estimate is the, the oil price decline as it stands now would cost Texas around 150 to 175,000 jobs next year. Now, to put that in perspective, Texas gained over 400,000 last year. So you're still looking at a pretty healthy gain in employment, even when you factor that in, but certainly not this Texas miracle that people have been talking about for the last uh, three or four years. Ray, where do you expect uh, oil and gas prices to be a year from now? Are they going to still hover in the 50, 40, 60 range, or are they ever going to get back to 70, 80? Oh, I think I think you'll see them up some uh, within a year. A lot of that depends. There's so many factors in, in play right now. There's exchange rates as the dollar strengthens. There's there's Middle Eastern politics. There's of course the supply situation in the United States. There's whether or not we do anything about exporting oil from the United States. There's a, there's a lot of different dynamics taking place in this industry right now. But I do think you'll see prices firming some. Basically, at this point in time, we're below the world equilibrium price of oil, and it's and and I think the OPEC countries will only allow that to happen for so long. Some of them desperately need the price to be higher now. Uh, Saudi Arabia's all-in cost with all their social programs and everything is about $97 a barrel at this point in time to, to cover everything they need to cover with oil. They're a long way from that right now. They can do that for a while. They have a big surplus and they can run it down, but they're not going to want to do that forever. And so I, I think you will start to see some, some balance uh, take place here and you'll see prices firming again. Probably I think the world equilibrium price right now to produce what we need on an ongoing basis is somewhere in the mid-70s. I think that's where you settle out, but it's a volatile industry we're going to be below that at periods of time, above that at periods of time, probably almost never where it should be, but fluctuating around it. That's just the nature of this very volatile commodity industry with all the geopolitics involved in it. But, yeah, I think a year from now you'll see prices a little firmer than they are now. And where are you going to see the U.S. dollar? I mean, it's still strengthening. Where is that, where is that going to wind up? Well, it's hard to say at this point in time, but I think there's room for it to strengthen some more, primarily because the U.S. economy is doing very well right now. The Federal Reserve has indicated they're not going to throw as many dollars into the system as, as they have been in the past, and that's that puts them over pressure. And then, and then the countries in Asia, and particularly in Europe, are really struggling right now, and their currencies are under some pressure right now. And, and that, of course, accrues to the benefit of the dollar. So I think you're probably going to see a stronger dollar. Now, that's everybody from an 
I guess American pride situation thinks that's a good thing. But but when you stop and think about the economic, that also means U.S. goods, including manufactured goods, are more expensive in the world and, and a little bit less competitive in the world. So they're, they're, like everything else in the economy, there are trade-offs. A, a, a strong dollar giveth and a strong dollar taketh away. But 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 I do think we probably go, probably have room for a little more strengthening of the dollar uh, at this point in time. We're going to take a break in a minute or so here, but Dr. Perryman, I'd like you to touch on, uh, if you can, the Keystone Pipeline. Is that ever going to come to fruition, or is that just going to die a slow death? Oh, I, I would just love to talk about that. I should mention it first before I say anything else, so a, a small caveat. <laughs> when, you, when you hear people talk about some idiot came up with all these numbers of all this economic impact, I'm the idiot, okay? We, we did the original studies and testified before the State Department and all that, so you, so you need to know I'm the idiot before we, we start here. Somehow I concluded <laughs> that if you spend $6 billion building something, you might have some economic impact. I don't know what I was thinking that day. <clears throat> but anyway, uh, <laughs> having, having said that, uh, you know, I think <clears throat> the dynamics of the project have changed a lot. Obviously, Obviously, we have a lot more domestic oil production than we had before. We have uh, a lot of things going on that, that we didn't have at the time. At the time, this would have been a huge project nationally in terms of construction because it was in the middle of a recession and nothing was going on. Now there's 25, 30 projects going on as big as this one. So so it's, the dynamic has certainly changed some over time as this thing has gone along. And, it, and I think it basically comes down to politics, obviously, will it get approved or not. Uh, assuming it, it gets approved, though, there's also an economic issue of does it make sense to build it for the investors. And I think the answer to that is still yes, because we still need to get that oil uh, down to the down into the U.S. system, and, and there's still some and there's room for it to pick up some of the Bakken oil along the way. So I, I think it still makes sense to do the project uh, economically. The politics are very difficult to read. It's it, it's it's an interesting dynamic because you have. One demographic constitu- I mean, one democratic constituency, organized labor that really wants it, and another democratic constituency, the environmentalists who really don't want it. And so you've got a, it's an interesting political dynamic as it evolves over time. The president doesn't seem predisposed to approve it right now. Uh, obviously, uh, there, there's going to be a new administration of, in, in the not too distant future with one party or the other. And the, there may be a different dynamic at that time. We can, we'll have to wait and see about that. But, but, but I think it's a project that basically makes a lot of sense. It's been thoroughly studied, thoroughly tested. I, I certainly hope it happens at some point. It, it would, it would bring a lot of benefit. And what a lot of people don't realize, if I can say just one more thing about it, this is not about whether or not oil with high sulfur content from Canada gets produced and refined. It's a question of where it gets refined. Does it get done in the United States? And employ. Uh, citizens of the United States or does it get done somewhere else? If, if that pipeline's not built, Canada's not going to say, well, we thought, thought about drilling that oil, but we're just not going to go get it. Now we just leave it there. That's not going to happen. It, 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 it's all about where it gets done. And if it can be done safely and securely in an environmentally appropriate manner, I, for one, would like to see those jobs in the United States. Thank you, Ray. And we'll be right back uh, after a few words from our uh, our advertisers with Mr. Brad Holcomb, who's committee chair of ISM's report on business and Dr. Ray Perryman, who's president and CEO of an economic research and analysis firm in Waco, Texas. But right now, some words from our sponsor. Manufacturing Talk Radio will be right back. American Crane and Equipment Corporation in Douglasville, Pennsylvania, is a leader in specialized cranes, hoists, and material handling equipment for industries including aerospace, nuclear, oil and gas, transit, construction, and waste handling. Call 877-877-6778 or visit AmericanCrane.com. That's AmericanCrane.com or 877-877-6778. How do you keep your business humming? 
Where do you go when you're looking for quality suppliers of new equipment? Components, MRO supplies, repair services, or even raw materials. 30 years ago, you would have turned to the Thomas Register. Today, those big green books are better than ever at thomasnet.com, industry's leading platform for product sourcing and supplier discovery. You can easily find that local machine shop, national distributor, OEM, or any supplier having the right quality certification. Fast and free. You can even get to specific products, components, or downloadable 3D CAD drawings simply by entering specifications or part numbers. There's a reason ThomasNet.com has become the go-to supplier discovery tool for procurement professionals and engineers. There's simply no other resource like it, and it's all free. Go to ThomasNet.com today and see how top-notch supplier discovery doesn't have to put a dent into your bottom line. All Metals and Forge Group is an ISO 9001 AS and EN 9100 manufacturer of open die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless and tool steels, aluminum, copper, titanium, and nickel alloys. Visit us at steelforge.com or call 800-600-9290. Welcome back to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Brad Holcomb. We're back with Mr. Brad Holcomb, who is the uh, committee chair of ISM's Report on Business, and Dr. Ray Perryman, who is president of the Perryman Group. I'm Tim Grady with my co-host, Lou Weiss. And I'd like to go to you, Brad, to talk about supplier deliveries and inventories to see what happened in March in those two categories. Uh, yes, and, and let me also tick down through um, the rest of our metrics as we as we usually do. But I want to jump back just a half a step and talk about some of the very positive comments uh, from our panel um, that I think reflect really some good solid fundamentals. First, in the transportation equipment, which we've talked a little bit about, certainly includes uh, aircraft, but also autos, which keeps going gangbuster. The comment is business is ex still extremely strong. Uh, from uh, paper products, March business is improving over January, February, thawing out from this crazy winter. Um, from your favorite uh, industry, Tim and Lou, fabricated metal products, our business is still strong and on projection. Uh, with the caveat that the dollar strength is challenging uh, for our international business. And then finally, from the food, beverage, and tobacco products industry, which is one of our very largest, falling energy prices have helped on the cost side while sales are getting a boost through improvements in consumer disposable income. And uh, we, we see that uh, individually as we go to the gas pump save a few bucks, and then go to the grocery store and get some of our favorite products. Okay. So uh, supplier deliveries, 50.5 uh, down 3.8 percentage points, which means that it's slowing but at a slower rate. Now, what does this really mean? I think that supplier deliveries are catching up because, in part at least, because of the West Coast port situation on its way to, to resolution and things not piling up so much. So I think that's helping supplier deliveries. 
of raw materials to our manufacturing plants. Now, relatedly, inventories of raw materials is at 51.5, a very nice level. Not sure the mix is totally right yet because of the port situation, but nevertheless, we're, we're going to see, or we're going to continue to see inventories plus or minus a little bit around that 50 mark because our manufacturing companies spend a lot of time and resources and tools to make sure they have the inventory on hand to satisfy customer demand. There's a lot of uh, money tied up in inventories, and they um, do a great job these, these days of keeping them in balance. So a good level at 51.5. Uh, continuing on down our list, customer inventories of finished goods is at 45.5, which means they're too low and um, lower than last month by a, uh, by a point. Which, which is good news because that creates uh, sort of a, a gap or a draft and a propensity to, to refill the shelves when that consumer confidence uh, builds and uh, individuals go back to the store uh, to place their money. Next on the list, prices of raw materials uh, decreasing for the fifth consecutive month. And as we've talked this is very unusual for this time of year, but of course, uh, it's solely due to the oil prices uh, and related, such as resins that contain, uh, you know, petroleum, and also uh, steel, aluminum, other metals are on our list of of commodities decreasing in price because those take a lot of energy to produce. So at 39 in an index, is the index, it's up 4%, but it's still a very low number uh, relative to especially this time of year. That translates into mostly good news for, for most of our industries in two ways, lower raw materials, and secondly, it costs less to run our plants. You know, the notable exception among our industries would be the petroleum and coal products, uh, which is taking a hit. Uh, they're laying off people, they're canceling projects, they're canceling orders for equipment. And uh, that industry represents about 10% of what we track across manufacturing overall. Uh, next, a uh, backlog of orders. And we touched on this when we talked about production. Uh, it's down two percentage points at 49 and a half, still in very good position uh, to continue to have something to reach back for to the extent that new orders, um, you know, don't pick up uh, as strongly as we'd, as we'd all like. But again, well balanced in terms of backlog of orders. And then finally to, to exports and imports, uh, exports at 47 and a half down a point contracting for the third consecutive month. And I think this follows something like a, a trend of 22 or so consecutive months of growing uh, exports, you know, prior to, to this year. Uh, so something's happening there. We talked about that, the stronger U.S. dollar. And as I look at our December 2014 report, uh, I think 
certainly for the first time under my watch, was predicting that the dollar would strengthen against all currencies that we track. And uh, that's, that certainly has transpired and is having an impact. And then finally on our list, uh, imports is down one and a half points from 54 last month to 52.5, still growing. This represents uh, imports largely of raw materials and to some extent uh, sub-assemblies from abroad. Uh, we like their pricing and, and availability, uh, contract houses, and so on. So that rounds out our list. And while the PMI is at 51.5, maybe not as high as we'd like, it's above 50. Another thing I like about the report, all five of its supporting specific indexes that we've talked about are at 50 or above, so pretty well balanced. Uh, Dr. Perryman. Uh, yes, sir. Talking, talking about uh, imports and exports, uh, we, we've talked a little bit about that, that Europe pretty much is uh, sort of in the toilet. Uh, China is uh, fairly robust, even though there's been some downtrends there. Let's let's talk about our friends to the south of us in South America. Nobody seems to talk about South America much. Mm. Uh, we, we have a uh, business venture down there and uh, in Brazil, and... Uh, they got quite a mess down there, and uh, can you can you speak to that uh, issue in Brazil? Sure, they, they, they do have quite a mess down there politically, economically, and, and, and otherwise, as do several of the, of the Latin American countries right now. Having said that, South America, if you look at their economic growth numbers, they're not bad. I mean, they, they've been growing at a pretty decent percentage for, for quite some time here. There's been some economic development in some of the areas. Their investment climate is dangerous. Their country risk assessments are horrible in some cases right now. The political instability, of course, in Brazil and elsewhere is, is, is very dicey, their economic situations as well. <clears throat> but there's a lot of potential there. These are areas that are likely to be emerging manufacturing centers in the future and as they begin to get their act together a little bit more. And so I think there's a huge amount of potential there to be good trading partners for us, good partner. Obviously, there's some advantages to being associated with folks that are in a little more close proximity to us. But uh, but right now there's some significant difficulties that are really clouding all of, of South America and most of Central America as well. There's a lot of, of political instability right now that's having some adverse impacts, in, including even Mexico, uh, with, with, it, with its own set of issues. Well, as uh, as I remember, South America always had great potential, uh, and, and it never seems to really quite get there. Uh, if it isn't uh, the dollar, it's... Uh, the politics, it's the uh, dictators, it's the uh, uh, many things going against the coming to fruition uh, in oh, terms that's of... that's absolutely true, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And as you say, I did for a long time. When I was when I was first starting out in economics back in the late 70s, early 80s, every banker you met, bankers usually aren't very funny, and they all had the same joke. They all said they were working on their MBA, Mexico, Brazil, and Argentina, because they had they they all were dealing with with uh, financial issues down there. Those sort of got muddled through, uh, but but there's you know there continues to be political instability. I'll say one thing for them, uh, particularly in Central America, they do have their priorities straight. They've never had a revolution during baseball season, so they they, they do have their their priorities straight. They first they said 
middle of the pennant race, and they overthrow the government. So at least they have things in the right order. <laughs> but, uh, but beyond that, uh, there is a there are some serious issues down there. There's also incredible potential. You have young workforces. You have you have an area that's ripe for investment. You have good raw material base. You have a lot of things going for those areas, and and it's and and you get progressive leadership for a while. And they seem to be making progress, and then you take a step back, and it it, it, it is a very difficult seesaw thing. As the history of development of most countries is, if you go back and look at their early history, uh, ours was was kind of checkered in its own right. But but uh, but I do think you will find some uh, uh, that that in the future you will see some good things coming out of those areas. And at times we have in the past, and there's some fairly positive things going on right now. Like I say, in terms of economic growth, uh, in the uh, if you go back not the last year or so, if you go back the last three or four years, they've grown faster than we have, and and, and certainly faster than Europe. So so there's there's uh, you know there, there there is just a tremendous amount of, of untapped potential there that hopefully at some point comes more fully to fruition. I think better trade agreements will help, uh, better outreach will help. A lot of things will help along the way, but but we have a lot of work to do, and they have a lot of work to do. You mentioned uh, Mexico a moment ago, um, and from uh, what we're hearing and uh, reading about, that Mexico is uh, coming online. They they have uh, what they're now calling nearshoring, where uh, the old American industries at left are coming back, not necessarily to America, but they're coming back closer by going to New Mexico, uh, to Mexico, where they are uh, getting the benefit of lower uh, lower wages, and it's close enough to be able to have American uh, management go down there and manage these uh, facilities, and the fact that aerospace, uh, interestingly enough, is. Uh, seemingly moving out of California, aside from going to the Carolinas, but they're going to Mexico. Um, anything on that, uh, Doctor? Oh, sure. I mean, I mean, again, Mexico, particularly northern Mexico, has tremendous potential. We've had very good trade relationships with them for many, many years, starting with the Maquiladora program, and then, of course, NAFTA enhanced and expanded all of that, uh, and that's been in place for 20 years now. So, so we do have enough time to mature some things here and make it a very good investment uh, opportunity. A lot of things are happening there. A lot of, if you take, for example, there's a big Toyota plant that located in San Antonio a few years ago. A lot of their suppliers went to northern Mexico. You, you have a lot of, of that sort of uh, synergy taking place between the United States and Mexico. It's a difficult situation right now for a number of reasons. One is, of course, the drug issues in Mexico and the violence issues and, the, and how that's bled over across the border. That, that puts a damper on things, you know, imperils the investment climate for the area. That's something that needs to be addressed. Uh, our own internal politics about fences and, and troops on the border and that sort of thing uh, is a damper on some of this, and that needs to be, you know, that needs to be handled in a more rational way. So there's a, there's a lot of, of, uh, of. Uh, Issues out there that in, in, in a lot of ways are extraneous, but they but they get in the middle of things and muck things up, uh, for lack of a better phrase. And you do have a lot of that going on right now. But yes, Mexico has tremendous potential. There's a lot of investment going on right now. Fairly progressive government uh, supporting a lot of that. The governor, the governments in some of the border states are, are are being pretty aggressive right now. And so there's a lot of positive things going on. At the same time, they have some very very difficult issues uh, that really have to be addressed because it just makes it very difficult when you do a country risk assignment to say, uh, assessment to say this is a good place to be. With all the manufacturing that's beginning to grow there, wouldn't that also aid um, the migration of uh, people from Mexico to the U.S. and uh, keep them south of the border? 
Sure. I mean, the, the, the whole immigration issue, and it gets, and we've done a lot of research on this over the years and done several national studies and that sort of thing. When you really get down to it, it's a labor market. And when we have a shortage of labor in this country, a market's going to find a way to fill it, and that's one way to fill it. And, and those numbers go up when the economy's good and there's lots of construction jobs and agricultural jobs and hospitality jobs. It goes down when there's not those jobs. If you have more economic opportunity in Mexico, more people will, will remain in Mexico. It's, it's, very much, it's very much an economically driven uh, situation. It's, it's for all the politics that gets involved and mucks around with it, at the end of the day, markets find a way to solve problems, and this is one way a market's found to solve a problem. And, and obviously, a, a more robust U.S. economy means the demand for more workers. At the same time, more job opportunities in Mexico lead to, uh, to uh, a, a greater tendency to remain in Mexico. And, and, and you know, all these issues come into play. I mean, even with all the progress in China and all the talk you hear about China and, and how China's progressing and China's developing a middle class and all these things, all of which are true. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in, in China. But, uh, but basically, the average wage in China right now for a manufacturing worker is $1.74. So globally, you know, there's still a huge gap. And, and so that means American workers have to be more, more productive. They have to do, be in the higher value-added elements of the production process. We do the things we do very well, but, but uh, you know, there's other things where we're still not as competitive as, as, as we need to be, and that's not advocating lower wages. It's advocating greater productivity, more investment in technology, and those kinds of things to, to, make, it, uh, to, to make us more competitive. A lot of that's happening right now, but Mexico is, is, is certainly one piece of the puzzle we're seeing right now, one where there is a lot of opportunity, and, yes, it Economic opportunity in Mexico fundamentally is a very important issue in dealing with with uh, immigration issues. Brad, I just want to go to you for a moment on your uh, uh, PMI numbers that uh, have uh, softened a bit since December. Uh, for those who might be concerned uh, and and want to chart this as a downward move, which I don't think it is, um, if you could share with the, uh, with us. Uh, how this is consistent with your forecast in December, which was quite rosy, and, and you're still predicting a 3% increase in GDP? Uh, yes. Uh, as, as I mentioned, we do a correlation uh, every January. We refresh that against uh, the PMI, against GDP, and the, the first quarter would reflect uh, on our scales a 3% increase in real gross domestic uh, product. Uh, in terms of our, our forecast, uh, we don't forecast in the same terms, but we did forecast, and let me just check, a 5.6% increase in overall revenues. So, so that's a, a significant growth measure for manufacturing. And it'll be interesting to see, of course, what the refreshed update is that we'll reveal on May 5th or 6th. Um, but we projected a, a good solid year. Uh, we're, we're not at that point yet, but certainly we have the, the potential uh, to, to get there uh, without question in my mind. And Dr. Perryman, uh, as you look across the, uh, the remaining months of 2015 and into 2016, uh, do we still see a strong economy rolling out here for a number of months, if not a couple of years? 
Yeah, I, I think the economy has every reason to, to be strong. Now, we, we a lot of people don't realize we've had a very long recovery. Uh, the average rec- post-war recovery has been 58 months. It took us 58 months this time just to get back to even in terms of job loss. But we've been going now uh, a long time in this recovery. It's above average in length already. But but having said that, it, it's only recently started to have some momentum to it. And very rarely does a recovery in this day and age die of old age. Uh, there, there used to be a lot of theory about business cycles and natural things and that sort of thing. If you go back and look at the post-war era, most recessions have been caused by some external event or something stupid. We we overspeculate in mortgages. We overspeculate in dot com stocks. We there, there there's an oil shock. I mean, it, it, it's something on the it's it's something outside the norm of the system that 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 ta- that takes it down. And there's nothing extremely there's nothing obvious like that right now. Now could something happen? Absolutely. Could you have a, an event you're not expecting? Absolutely. Uh, could some terrorist thing happen or some other big instability in the world? Of course it could. There's there's all kinds of potential risk out there. But if you look at the most probable outcomes right now. Now, there's not really anything that, that looks like it's going to just knock the economy for a loop uh, anytime soon. Well, that's good to hear. And for our listeners, I'm sure it's very good to hear. Uh, uh, Brad, if you would share with our listeners, again, your website and where they can find both this report and the non-manufacturing report, which correlate quite nicely to one another. Yes, and I'd like to share one sort of tactical tip for our buyers and and commodity managers in just a second. Our website is www.ism.ws. You can find both our manufacturing report and non-manufacturing reports written by my colleague, Tony Nieves, uh, on that site, as well as information on the upcoming conference. Now to a a brief tactical tip. We do have a listing of commodities reported up and down in price and in short supply every month. Uh, Commodities down in price is a rather long list of plastics, resins, uh, the the metal products, as I mentioned. Um, But also we've got some commodities uh, up in price. And sometimes you'll see a commodity both up and down in price, and that is because uh, our panelists are are having different experiences in the same time frame. It represents a, a tipping point where things are moving in one direction but I'm about to move in the other direction. So watch that very closely uh, as it relates to, for example, oil, um, and uh, make your, your purchasing contracts uh, you know, smartly smartly done on that basis. Well, that's great. Uh, we probably will uh, grab that as a golden nugget of this show and send it out to our listeners. Brad, uh, the ISM show that's coming up uh, May 3 through 6, uh, I think uh, we would love to have any of uh, your time that we can get as you release both uh, your update and your monthly report for May. So if you would kind of pencil something into your calendar and get with uh, – your team of folks, I know they schedule you really tight. So we'll look forward to anything you can give us uh, on the floor of the ISM show. And we we'll appreciate definitely you try to make that happen. Yep. No, Thank you for great. having me. And, Ray, it and was nice to share the airwaves with you. Good to be with you again, Brad. I always enjoy it. Uh, Ray, we did not actually give you a chance at the top of the hour to talk a little bit about the Perryman Group, so why don't you get that website address and blow your horn a little for our listeners. Okay, I'll, I'll, our, our website is just www.perrymangroup.com, and we are a, we are a 
30-plus-year-old economic consulting firm in Texas. We work all over the world. We do just about anything that has to do with economic analysis. We do market studies. We do forecasts. We do economic impact studies. We help support the regulatory and, and, uh, and litigation issues for, for large corporations. We do a lot of work with intellectual property, a lot of work with antitrust, a lot of work with environmental issues, energy issues, uh, pretty much a full-service, very experienced economic uh, research firm. And uh, we would welcome the opportunity to work with any of your listeners. We, we, we truly, truly would. <laughs> Well, that would be great. Uh, I certainly encourage our listeners to go to that website and take a look at the Perryman Group. Uh, Lou, anything before we uh, close the hour and uh, uh, wrap up our show? Well, I'd like to mention for those of you who uh, did not hear the entire show, uh, in about uh, 60 to 90 minutes from now, you'll be able to go to our website at mfgtalkradio.com and you'll be able to listen to the entire show on our podcast. Um, and next week we will be back on our usual uh, Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. And, uh, Tim, take it away. We certainly have been honored to have uh, Dr. Uh, Mr. Brad Holcomb on the show. We call him Dr. Brad Holcomb because we give him an honorary degree. He's been on our show once a month religiously giving us the uh, ISM report, and we're very pleased to have him with us every month, and Dr. Perryman, who uh, joined us today. If you would like to follow us on uh, on Twitter, we are uh, on uh, uh, Twitter where you can follow us uh, at com, and you can certainly follow us on Facebook or go to our website, mfgtalkradio.com, and listen to any of our previous Shows. They are all uh, there as podcasts, so you can go back into them. There typically is a golden nugget somewhere in those shows. It's important for you to listen to, as Brad gave one today. We look forward to being with you again next week, and we've got some exciting upcoming shows on not just the aerospace industry, but also on cybersecurity and manufacturing. We're going to look at a show on that. And we look forward to all of our listeners joining us in the near future and again next Tuesday for Manufacturing Talk Radio. That wraps up our show today, and we will be back with you again next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time as the voice of manufacturing globally. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.